Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books Network. Today, I am Bernardo Batislazo, and today, as our guest, we have George Goldberg. George, thank you very much for being with us at NBN today. George Goldberg is a senior faculty member in the Department of Management and Economics at the Open University of Israel. He holds a PhD in economics from the University of Rochester, and a law degree from Tel Aviv University. Dror studies the theory, history, and law of money, especially of legal tender currency. His work has been published in the Journal of Economic History, the Journal of Monetary Economics, Economic Theory, and the Journal of Money, Credit, and Banking, among others. He is the author of Easy Money, American Puritans, and the Intervention of Modern Currency, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2023, which just reached number one in Amazon New Books in Monetary Economics, as well as having some very positive reviews in top outlets such as the Wall Street Journal. So congratulations on that drawer, and thank you for being with, with us today. Thank you very much. So let's start a little bit uh, with the background of, of the book, which you give us uh, some um, bit of that in the introduction. So how did you become an academic and how did you end up researching the history of money? Well, it all happened by accident, really. I did not plan to become an academic. I was a book student in elementary school, high school, but there was no one wanted around anyone to, to look up to say, well, I can be a professor like you. I didn't help anyone. So I just went to the university, tried to get a degree and get out and have a real job. So I studied the economics in law. In Israel, law school is an undergraduate degree, but I will always think a very uh, intensive that degree. So I studied that, economics in law. And uh, pretty quickly I realized that it didn't really work hard the real job in economics. It didn't seem very interesting. The grades were good. So I moved on to more uh, getting the master's degree, and then I looked around to see what one could do with the master's degree in economics. Didn't seem much better, so moved on to the PhD. That's it. I'm still in academia. They haven't kicked me out yet. So that was kind of my accident. I mean, now when looking back, uh, it's obvious that this was the the right career for me. I just didn't uh, think about it, but. Now, I uh, grew up with uh, very high inflation. I was a teenager, inflation hit 450%. That was in the 1980s. And that was kind of interesting. And while I was a student, Israel uh, managed to get from uh, low double digits to low single digits. The governor of the Bank of Israel was a very famous economist, Jacob Franken from Chicago. 
Um, it was a very hot topic, uh, how to reduce the inflation against all political pressures that you can imagine. So I got interested in monetary economics and I remember the very high inflation that uh, I grew up with. So that was in the background. I, uh, I thought I would study Roman uh, monetary policy yeah. and you know, things like that. But uh, then at the University of uh, Rochester, I had a very shocking lecture. So the lecture was Felkusel, uh, who is the, now in Sweden. And he was a student of Neil Watts, who was a student of Milton Friedman. And Pearl gave us a kind of the Neil Wallace critique that uh, with all the fuss about monetary economics, we don't even really know why people accept why anymore. If it's not related to gold, why do we accept it? The most basic uh, puzzle you can, you can ask about monetary economics. So I uh, tried to look for an answer, and I came across the theory that it's because of uh, tax payments. So we cannot uh, go to the central bank today and ask for gold, meaning the jobs for our paper money, but we have to pay taxes uh, with paper money. It's legal tender for taxes. Nothing else is legal tender for taxes. Technically, we don't really pay paper money to the tax authority. Obviously, it all goes through the banking system, but uh, to feed the bank accounts, for which I uh, transfer my money, I need to get legal tender paper money. And uh, this uh, theory, I, I mean, everybody who works in this field knows the famous mind from Adam Smith from the West of Nations, saying that uh, a prince who accepts uh, his paper money for taxes can that way need money to his paper money. And after working on uh, theoretical models of money that uh, use this mechanism of tax payments, the uh, Kyotaki Wright models, those know uh, these kinds of models, I became interested in why Adam Smith uh, even wrote this famous line. So I went to his book, and it turns out he did not write about it uh, theoretically. He described the situation in the American colonies, which at the very same time declared independence. So turns out this was the standard among the American colonies, the British American colonies. So I started reading, what did, what did they take the idea from? And it's kind of the consensus that it all started in Massachusetts in 1690. That's kind of a conventional result. Nobody has doubted it. So I went reading about this uh, first paper money. And that's where I found something surprising. So they had a wall, they had to pay soldiers, so they printed paper money. Nothing special about it. It had many times in history, even before Massachusetts. The interesting thing is that and uh, they actually revived only of this mechanism of paying taxes. There was no convertibility to precious metals. There was no law uh, no that compelled everyone, all the sellers in the marketplace, to sell for this paper money. And this was surprising because during war, that's what everyone else did before. The government either forced everyone under penalty to accept the paper money. Well, it promised to convert it into a real coin after the war was over. 
Massachusetts didn't do that. They just said, well, yeah, we're, we're in a very serious emergency, but nobody has to accept the paper. But only our old tax collectors and we have to accept it. So that was very striking that we had. I already knew enough monetary history at that point to realize that this was something very, very interesting. And not only that, but apparently the entire system of using tax payments to support paper money started there. Now, everybody knew this was the first American paper money, British American paper money, but for American historians, that was good enough. I mean, that's what they cared about, that this was the first paper money in the British American colonies, and the legal status didn't really matter. Now, I already had the law degree, and they understood what legal tender meant, so I was very, very curious what was going on there. So, I uh, started breathing and wrote a paper, and from that came another paper, or another, and uh, then the University of Chicago Press suggested, well, you know uh, interesting things about a century that almost nobody talks about in monetary history because economics and, sorry, academic economists prefer to go where the data lies, and that's the uh, 18th century, you have lots of data, lots of paper, money, prices, and you get one regressions. And people have been arguing about the legacy of the 18th century for centuries. But the 17th century, you don't have any data, you have paper money only from Massachusetts and very little uh, American information. So, nobody looks at it. I did. So, the press said, Well, we see a potential for a book here. All right. So, came up with a proposal and it was accepted then, but uh, that's it. <laughs> well, it, it all happened by accident. I didn't plan it. Okay. So <clears throat> thank you for that. So what would you, be, be, before we go back to the, to, to discussing the book and placing it into a wider context, what would you recommend? What would be the um, suggestion that you would make? two uh, young scholars who are uh, just getting into the field and who would like to publish a book as part or need to publish a book as part of their career progression? Well, it very much depends uh, what they are. In Israel, their system uh, kind of follows the United States and their, these places, it invites a lot like a book if you have to get tenure on promotion. It's very unfortunate, but that's how the system works in these two countries, Israel and the U.S. I think that uh, Europe included England, the situation is different. But uh, for me, this book so far has been uh, mostly trouble. So uh, you have to ask around uh, to see. Uh, many economists, especially those who come from backgrounds in uh, math, engineering, exact sciences, they cannot even comprehend why one would write a book, let alone a book that doesn't have a mathematical model or econometrics. Uh, it seems totally irrelevant for economic research for them. And in some departments, uh, well, these people have the, have the power, they control. And, uh, that's kind of the culture that I had to deal with which is not a very pleasant experience. So in the U.S., uh, better not go into before every thing, you must get a vendor of all time they want. 
Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> but that's how things are like. Yes, of course. Well, but it's not the whole world. And there are people that we do appreciate books that don't have any maths or econometrics. So, um, and as the success of your book suggests, it's also other people out there, including practitioners who do appreciate that. So there are things about, um, um, you know, how things work in particular areas of knowledge and, and promotion. But let's go back then to to the book and something that um, while reading it and, and, and you're trying to write to a, to a broad audience um, and, 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 you know, you, you can see some of those um, thinking coming in, in, in the background, but something that I, I, I felt uh, during the introduction of, of, of the book um, as as you basically uh, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, start the book. You you have a great introduction in which you you tell how things come together, then go to explain how the the context takes place, and then we go into this critical event around December 1690, and we'll we'll, we'll come back to to that uh, for a moment. But as you already have introduced now is this issue between um money and taxes and, and there are two two things here or or three that i would like to discuss with you one of them is you know the concept of money beyond the settlement or or the use for the settlement of on-the-spot uh transactions in the case that you are looking that kind of applies most of the transactions are on the spot um not all of them as 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 you rightly mentioned there is a, a um already a market or at least there have been incidents both in in england and spain and and uh, other parts of europe of governments issuing debt uh large large amount of 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 that and, and this is coming coming together with but I'm, I'm thinking of of the work of Joaquin Walt and um also uh, ben, um uh, the Christian Calmers and others that have worked in in Spain for instance but the point that I'm trying to make is uh there are two big schools in the way that people think about money and to my mind, you were talking about the cartelist school that basically um, says money is anything that you have to pay your debts. And the first type of debt that you have is taxes. And the, uh, I'm following uh, uh, very quickly uh, the picture here. The current um, expression of, of this is the so-called modern monetary theory. But, but you are not really embracing modern monetary theory, you're trying to navigate away from it, um, but at the same time, you're kind of touching into 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 this. So how, how are you trying to negotiate or how are you trying to navigate between these different uh, approaches of what is money and, and, and the stance that you are trying to take? Right, so in uh, the so-called uh, modern monetary theory, I uh, 
I basically begin with, uh, sorry, I basically agree with the starting point. The starting point is that money, the value of, not the value, the circulation of money is supported by the government uh, accepting it in taxes. I totally agree with that. My main disagreement is what comes next. So MMT says, well, uh, we can uh, use this to print as much as we want. These taxpayers, they will have to accept whatever amount we print. And that's great. We can finance the Green New Deal and solve, not uh, reduce, but solve completely all of the social problems. So that's what they say. And my conclusion from the fact that uh, the government can uh, create uh, as much money as it wants is the opposite. I say, no, be careful. Uh, we have a terrible risk of inflation. In, uh, governments can print money and people will accept it, so they will keep printing. And uh, if you think about it, that's actually how inflation is even possible with uh, money that is not backed by gold. Because if you didn't have this tax mechanism, as soon as government's money hits, uh, I don't know, 10%, 20% inflation, people will have left it. Why do you have 100% in Argentina and 30 today? Because people still have to use that money to pay taxes. And many government employees keep getting uh, salaries without that money. So they, uh, they are happy about this mechanism. I say it's terrible. That, that's why my old government created the triple-digit inflation when I was a kid. So the policy conclusion is totally different because we agree on the basic mechanism. That's the main difference. So I agree about only uh, the very first part of the theory. I totally disagree with the application. Another thing, uh, another difference from MMT, the, some of them say that uh, money... Uh, to paraphrase Milton Friedman, some of them say that money uh, was always and everywhere a government phenomenon. I disagree with that. I'd say that most of uh, history, it was related intimately to precious metals or other uh, materials with intrinsic value. And actually, I uh, wrote a book about the turning point. What people said, we don't need it. Uh, we don't need gold. We don't need uh, any intrinsic value. We just accept it for taxes. Now, the theory actually came a bit before that. Thomas Hobbes uh, bought in his famous book, Leviathan, he actually wrote about this, that, that the government's money gets validated by moving into and out of the state's treasury. And that's almost 40 years before Massachusetts. He wrote about it theoretically. Maybe they well directly inspired by him. I don't have the positive proof of that, but he already wrote about it. But the actual application of this idea that started in Massachusetts, before that, maybe it was in the background. Maybe some people said, yeah, well, I don't really care about uh, it being made from gold or silver, I can pay taxes with it. But it was, you know, it was probably always considered secondary. Anyone even thought about it. Then, in the 17th century, people realized that the tax mechanism could be uh, actually could function by itself. It doesn't need gold anymore. So I don't think 
that money was always and everywhere a government phenomenon, and there's plenty of evidence against it. So, so uh, I'm I'm a bit more moderate about this uh, capitalist view that the uh, government always supported money by taxes. Thank you. I need. Um, it, that's very insightful in in the way that you have thought about this because the the other thing that your book provides and, and maybe I'm answering or we have partly answered the the question. Let me give the introduction to this question, which is that in most um, textbooks of in economics, the view that is presented is that you move from <clears throat> this idea of efficiency, which is the alternative. Uh, broadly speaking, of to the cartelist, where you move from barter to the use of of commodity, to the use of precious metals, to the use of paper money, to now the use of of digital currency, and and that view that is also widely held by by journalists, I think it's it's one of the reasons why, in my mind, you've, you've been asked about you know what does your book tell about um. Bitcoin, but I think that your book is going much uh, deeper than 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 this. It on on the one hand, I think that it it's covering this these two areas, the the cartelist and some of these ideas in, in in textbooks. Because at this point in time, one of the things that you need for a barter economy is is a system of weights and measures, and and among other things. So otherwise, you 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 really cannot have Barter, which is something that you already have in, in Massachusetts. You already had the Mint. You already had all of these instances. Um, <clears throat> so two, two questions, and, and let's go by one, bit, um, by one by one. First, how does your book sit within all the books that are talking about money? And second, how is it? that you can and then probably we, we will we'll come back to that because in, in it's a deeper explanation. How can is it that you that you can measure or you can sense this need for a shortage of what is being as as currency, as money, yes, for everyday transactions, which is part of the reason or part of the motivation for settlers to try to find a a, a, a solution. So let, let's go then to the first one. You've already told us a little bit about this, but how does your book sit within other alternatives about um, what is money and other books about monetary theory? So I think what's uh, special in my book are uh, two things that are directly related to my background. First of all, I studied law. I know what legal tender means. Many economists, even monetary economists, don't really know what legal tender means. Uh, yeah. Some uh, very important uh, monetary theorists told me, yeah, I can pay taxes with whatever I want. Uh, I can pay taxes with my chicken. That's not true. Others said that legal tender means that uh, you can force people uh, to accept uh, whatever money the government wants. In all transactions, that's also not true. So. When among uh, economists, I uh, have understanding of uh, what legal tender means. It's kind of a very small point, but uh, it's important. If you want to talk about money, you better know this. 
that's one thing. Other has to go with the or sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you there, uh George. So what does legal tender mean for you? So legal tender is about discharging pre existing obligations. If I owe you ten bars, ten US bars, we are in the United States, that I can discharge this debt with a ten dollar bill or ten one bar bills. Uh, well, you don't have to accept it. You won't be penalized if you don't accept it. But if you go to court and I prove that I tendered you this legal tender money, then if you don't accept it, you uh, lose the case. I, mean, I can discharge my obligation with this very specific object. So this is a device that was originally meant to make life easier for calls. Because you don't want to people to haggle, well, you said that uh, I owe you $10, well, how should I pay? Should I pay in gold, in silver, in chicken, in clocks? In... Yeah. So there's a, a, this object that if you tender it in front of a judge, that's it. Yeah, you're, yeah. You've done what you had to do, and you're out, and you put this behind. So that's what legal tender means. doesn't have anything to do about spot transactions. It does apply to taxes as well, usually. You know, some laws that are in some walls actually referred only to taxes or only to debts, like your American city wall, they had stuff like that. But generally, it applies to debts and taxes by default. Um, it also doesn't apply if we denominate the debt in uh, something else, like potatoes. It's very, it's very, we have a debt, and they say, well, you owe you 10 potatoes in the US. Well, I'll pay you 10 potatoes. Dollars have nothing to do with it. So it's very limited in its uh, application. And actually, this is why some economists who knew exactly what it meant thought that it had nothing to do with helping money to circulate. Little Friedman is the best example. Yeah. He says in the various books, yeah, this is what legal tender means, and that's for, and therefore I think it's not important to get money circulating because it's only about debts and taxes. So that's what legal tender is. Yeah, thank you very much for for that. So um, and, and coming back to um, the 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 second question, which is, um, how does the um, your researching the book took place in the sense that there is uh, this aspect, which at least for me is very interesting, in that you're uh, saying, well, what is available at the time to settle transactions is insufficient. So in, in a way, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying trade wants to grow, but they don't have the financial means to do it. So they have to find an alternative, yes, um, and and you can see some representations of 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 that in in what you're saying. They are clipping coins. Um, they they could resort to some form of barter, but nevertheless, this 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 is part of the argument you you you're saying that leads to this innovation of of 1690, yes. Would you be able, so part of the question is, would you be able to measure, you know, this, this 
um, mismatch between trade or growth in trade, but and actual financial instruments to finance that trade, which in again in most textbooks are matched one to one. Yes, you you have the the the, the circular uh, diagram of the circular economy where trade is going in one direction and monetary flows are going in another direction. And and simply put, they 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 both. You know, when you when you teach, what you're taught is that money is there to help you um, oil the, the economy. But there is no question that um, monetary system is is inadequate or insufficient, as you're making the the case to fuel the the economy. So, would you be able to to you know how 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 would you able to grapple with this, um, given that to my mind, measuring this mismatch is very difficult. So I said that the, my book differs in two ways. One is the legal issue. The second way in which my book differs is that I have a, a strong theoretical background. So I worked for several, several years and my dissertation and a few years after that, I worked on these uh, mathematical models of money. Uh, that gives you a lot of discipline kind of focuses your attention on what is important and what is not important. And I think that's another thing that most uh, monetary historians, definitely other historians, didn't really have. So although I don't have any mathematical models in the paper, uh, it's, sorry, in the book, it's totally based on this uh, theory that we think they explain all simple terms. But uh, the muscle. So summarize the mathematical and legal backgrounds or actually the term for them that makes the books the book different so everything else that i've seen all right now for this question so the colonists in pretty much all the colonies except for the spanish and portuguese colonies maybe they complained that they didn't have enough uh, currency they were not necessarily poor they had words, they had land, they had uh, cows, but they had nothing to go shopping with. And they could mingle about it in real time, and then thought they found out the reason in real time. They said, we, have, we export too little and we import too much. So I, uh, I like the simpler, the simpler examples, and in this case, uh, Virginia is the first case, and that was a very simple economy. In the 1610s, they grew almost only tobacco, and European ships came, so they sold them all the tobacco, and the European ships from England or from the United Provinces, the Netherlands, gave them uh, European manufacturers. They gave them reds and shells and pots and pans and guns and paper and windows, and, that, and all that uh, stuff that they couldn't uh, produce themselves, they could not buy from the Indians. So they were kind of desperate. So they bought, let's say, with all their tobacco, and they wanted to buy even more. So they used the coin that they had in order to buy everything that uh, those European ships had to offer. Now, actually, there was kind of an externality here, because whenever a colonist decided to take a coin out of the Virginian economy and give it to a Dutch ship. He actually took out this coin from um, 
you know, many, many transactions that could have been conducted in the economy in that coin. But he didn't care about it. He only uh, cared about his own interest. He really wanted this, uh, uh, I don't know, pillow. And he couldn't pay for it anymore because he already gave all his tobacco away. So he gave away all the coins or almost all the coins he had. Now, uh, it was actually a puzzle for many years. I mean, they could have used the coins also to buy from labels. Uh, why did they prefer to use the coins with Europeans? So, uh, Father Grout, who is uh, an economic historian of the 18th century, he actually figured out uh, why they did it. With the label, they could uh, always buy on credit. But with the Dutch ship, they never say again, they couldn't buy credit there to pay on the spot. So they preferred to use the coins. It was an optimal decision. They preferred to use the coins with the ships, not with the labels. So the coins went away. Now, for the, let's say, most economists, there's nothing like some little amount of money, prices should decline. That's it. But this was such a severe outflow of money that most people didn't have a single coin. So it's not just having a, you know, a reduction of 50% in the amount of coins as you may have this theoretical exercise. Or as David Yoe put it, 80%. It was much more than that. And the outflow of coins was so severe that people didn't have coins for, for a long time. And in this case, you might even say that these coins were no longer money because most most transactions were conducted by other means. So the quantity theory of money, which predicts that prices will decline with the amount of money, doesn't even hold when, when most people don't have any use of money. If coins were perfectly divisible into infinitely many units, it wouldn't have been a problem. But they are indivisible at some point. You can't cut the uh, more than eight pieces then. Still have anything resembling the uh, standardization. So they did have enough coin and then uh, they decided, all right, we don't have coin, we'll bring to the shops whatever we can. So Virginians started uh, shopping at home with tobacco, not only with European ships, but also at home. And this uh, happened in all the colonies. So in Plymouth, they used the maize or corn. In Canada, they used beaver fells. In Barbados, they used tobacco first, and then cotton, and then sugar, or whatever they grew, whatever was their staple product, that's how they called it, that was their money. So it's kind of crazy, it's very primitive, it's almost biblical, but uh, that's how the system worked in all the colonies. So this was the backdrop for Massachusetts' uh, invention. Was it a Norman uh, colony with coins everywhere that suddenly started the printing paper model? It started in a crazy situation already. Thank you very much, Dror. And, and I've on purpose um, tried to work around the, what actually happens in, in Massachusetts in 1690, because that is the essence of, of the book. And, and I would like our, our listeners to to go and, and, and read your, your, your book and, and go into this fascinating and very, very detailed account that, that you give us on the run-up to this event and the consequences of, of, the, of the event. 
So, <clears throat> I don't know if you would like to tell us something more that I've left out from from the book and how, you know, this is pivoting or what is your, what is it that you're working next? So, more things about the book, um, sure. So, it is often said that uh, necessity is the model of invention and indeed this was a necessity. So they had a wall, they needed to pay money to soldiers, they needed to have coins or anything else, so they printed paper with very unusual properties, as I said before. But uh, many, many governments in the early modern period had the necessity to invent new types of money. In England, the civil wars of the 1640s, and in Europe, many, many instances, governments did have money to pay their soldiers. So necessity is the model of invention, but uh, many times governments failed to So I started thinking, okay, so there is a need to invent, but uh, maybe that's not the entire story. Here was, I was actually lucky because uh, economic historians, other things, not in monetary history, they thought uh, quite deeply about uh, why some people invent and others don't different contexts and especially and you took the ideas of uh, John Mokiu who wrote about the industrial revolution and he thought very seriously and deeply about why people invent and why others don't and what does it take to uh, think about an invention to implement it to spread it so I took all of uh, his insights and I'm trying to apply them to the context of the monetary innovation, which as far as I know, this is something that has never been done. So I took insights from another place. And then you have not only the necessity, but also the ability part in the story. And I think that's another unique aspect in the book, that I bring the necessity and the ability together I don't think that one is more important than the other. I think it was more important. And the ability in Massachusetts, it was built over decades. Many monetary experiments, the, and it was the trade hub of English America. It was the only English founding in the college, all today as Harvard University, of course. So it was a one particular society that had the high ability to come up with a solution to a problem that many other governments uh, faced and failed to address. So that's one thing that uh, is interesting, let's say, in the book. Other things are um, the indirect consequences of uh, the constitutional religious struggle in England and the regulation of the English state. So these are not direct monetary elements in the story, but the changes in their in England resulted in their shockwaves, let's say, that uh, affected the American colonies and the governments and what the governments could and could not do. And that was a very important uh, driving force throughout the 17th century. And much of it was through regulation. Regulation at home in England, regulation of religion that brought the Puritans to immigrate in the first place, and regulation of England, regulation of 
they should buy England of the colonies themselves. The regime, the land, the coins, all that. So these are kind of uh, things that I did not expect to find. That uh, England is actually behind all this. It's a blank England, definitely. Indirectly. So these are three uh, important lessons from the book. What I'm working on now. So I've, uh, I've returned to Israel since I started this project and I became a bit, uh, I should say, provincial. I became interested in how uh, Israel financed its own war, its uh, war of independence. I kind of stumbled upon it there and I didn't say uh, here too. I didn't plan to, to write anything. I just found this very interesting case where the government uh, committed not to print too much money, not to have inflation and finance of the wall, made a very beautiful commitment with a pseudo central bank and it's all public and nice, but that was only one currency. Secretly, that same bank increased its, uh, its uh, account, the government account, as much as the government wanted, without telling the public. So they actually fooled the population in order to finance the wall. Nobody knew I think. So, I don't know, I'm kind of drawn to the situation of wars and emergencies and the and the dishonest governments. And maybe I'll go back to this. I don't know, maybe the American Civil War, maybe the Great Depression. Uh, I think, let's say, uh, yeah, so we are talking uh, on April 4th. Tomorrow is uh, the anniversary of uh, 90 years since FDR confiscated all the gold in the U.S. And Saul is not American. I'm stunned by, <laughs> by this effect. I mean, Americans, much more than now, most Americans probably had guns. Uh, <laughs> and here the government comes with a presidential decree or order, says, well, give us all your gold. Federal Reserve notes, and there was no civil war. People obeyed. Found it amazing. So maybe I'll look into this uh, story. How that happened? How it was allowed to pass? It's amazing for it. Thank you very much, Dror. I'm, I'm sure that either one of them will also make a very interesting book, and hopefully we'll have you back at in the end talking about either or both of those um, very interesting uh, episodes. So again, thank you very much for, for being with us. And um, I would like also to thank our listeners. If uh, you have already subscribed, please write us or leave a comment. That always are always helpful. And, and if you haven't uh, subscribed, do subscribe to New Books Network. Uh, until next time, thank you very much, George Goldberg. <laughs> Maybe, 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 maybe